Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 15, and we will get there in just a few minutes. You know, uh, at Fellowship Greenville, we work hard to keep uh, politics out of the pulpit. And as an organization, we don't align ourselves with any particular political party. And that's, uh, that's the way it's been for the last 24 years. That has not changed, and it will not change. Now, uh, what I shared on my Facebook post, I, I said not as the official spokesman of the church, but I shared it as a concerned citizen and as your pastor. I want you to hear that I, in no way am I telling you how you should vote. We live in a free country with free elections, at least for the time being, and you must vote your conscience. And I do respect that. And I, and I, I, I hope you respect that I have that same right as well. I believe that there are people who genuinely love Jesus who will pray and vote differently from one another. But at this moment in history, and especially over the last six months or so, I, I now find myself as a shepherd very concerned about the future of our country. Sadly, we now live in a country that is tragically divided, and Jesus tells us a house divided against itself cannot stand. And it's bad enough that our country is divided, but as I talk to pastors all over the country, I grieve that churches are also divided. And for sure, I didn't want my remarks about this election to bring division in our church. As one pastor recently said, we are first and foremost followers of Jesus. Second, we're Americans, and somewhere down the line, we are Democrats or Republicans or Independents or the and movement or whatever, but we must never forget that order. And that means for us as faithful followers of Jesus, the starting point of all our choices we make, it should be that we think with and from Scripture. Now, as odd as this might sound to you, I didn't see what I posted as political. What I was sharing with you was my personal attempt to take what Paul told Timothy to do when he said, pray for godless leaders so that you might have peace, you can live your life and practice your faith in peace and so the gospel would spread throughout the world. I have been wrestling for that passage for some time and I'm trying to take those verses seriously and I was asking myself what ramification praying for godless leaders for that reason, to have peace amongst the, in the church and that the gospel could spread. I, I'm wrestling with myself, like what would that, what ramifications would that have for me in the upcoming election? And I title that, these are my personal thoughts. Personal thoughts. I, I'm sure we all have them, whether you're on the right or the left, and my hope would be that just as I'm comfortable with you praying and voting and talking about your views as you feel led, that you would extend the same courtesy to me. Now, again, as your pastor, as your shepherd, again, I'm very concerned about the future of the church because there is a growing hatred for Christians in America today. 
Way back during the exile series in First and Second Peter, I said repeatedly, it's not just that our beliefs today are considered irrelevant, they're considered dangerous. And hostility towards Christians is growing every day. And if you don't believe it, just talk to a student who attends one of our state universities. A student that's trying to live out their faith and see the kinds of things they have to face. Now, I will say this. I believe that regardless of who is elected, I believe the hostility and the hatred will grow even worse because I don't see how the trajectory of what's going on can be stopped outside of the direct intervention of God. Now, if that's true, my question to you is, how are you processing all this? How should a follower of Jesus think about all of this? Are you prepared to live in a world that is hostile to your faith and the faith you hope to instill in your children? That's the question, and I'm telling you, I'm so thankful for God's word because the passage we're gonna look at today gives us the help and the perspective that we need. We're in John chapter 15. If this is your first time with us, welcome. We're glad you're joining us today. If you attend here or tune in on a regular basis, you'll find that most often we are teaching and preaching our way through whole books of the Bible, and right now we are in a study in the Gospel of John, and this book, this biography of Jesus, was written for the intended purpose of bringing people who don't believe in Jesus to faith in Jesus, and to bring people who already believe in Jesus to a more solid, more confident faith in Jesus. Now, the context of John 15 is this. Jesus is meeting with his disciples, uh, with his disciples. <laughs> you know, I paid all kinds of money to get the right contact so I could see, but I, none of that money applies to my mouth messing up. So Jesus is meeting with his, thank you. They're, and they were a remnant, you understand. No, nope, I'm just kidding. You'd have to be here a long time for you to know how I messed that word up. But uh, Jesus is meeting with his disciples for what we call the Last Supper and the last Passover meal uh, that uh, Jesus is going to share with his disciples because it is on this very night that Jesus will be arrested falsely tried, and the next day he'll be na nailed to a Roman cross. And so on this night, Jesus is telling his disciples what life will be like on the other side of his death, resurrection, and ascension back to his Father in heaven. And the big idea is this. Jesus is saying, soon, like tomorrow afternoon, I'm going away. But soon, in about 50 days from now, I'm coming back to you. Soon you'll see me no more but soon you'll see me again. He says this in chapter 14 and chapter 16. And here in these chapters, 14 through 16, he's saying that he will come back to them in the person of the Holy Spirit. He will come back not only to be with them, but to be in them forever. And he started talking about this in chapter 14. He's gonna restate it all again in chapter 16. And sandwiched in between in chapter 15, Jesus gives an illustration of what it means to live our lives with the Holy Spirit living inside us. Now back in chapter 14, verse 20, 1420, Jesus revealed what I would say is the fundamental 
secret of Christian living. Seven words that sum up what the Christian life is and how we should live it. And those seven words are this, you in me and I in you. You in me and I in you. And here in chapter 15, he says the same thing slightly differently in verse 4 when he says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Now, these words, the reality of, of, of abiding in Christ are, in my opinion, the whole ball game of the Christian life. When a person trusts Christ as Savior, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside them and discovering the truth of you and me and I and you is the key to understanding how you and I grow to be the people God wants us to be. You see, we can, we, we can preach sermons on how husbands should love their wives and how wives should respect their husbands, and we can encourage people to live in integrity and be people who are honest and dependable and faithful and morally pure. We can teach people principles on prayer and peacemaking. We can call people to live lives that are not conformed to, the, to this world but to transform by the word of God and be different from this world. We can talk about how anger and lust and guilt and, and greed should not control our lives, and all of that is good and is right and is biblical, but unless we understand you and me and I and you, unless we understand what it means to abide in Christ, we will not make any real progress in the Christian life. Any kind of thing that happens in terms of change will just be moral reform or behavior modification without understanding you and me and I and you. Now, Jim said last week, to abide simply means stay. Stay connected to Jesus. Jim said, abiding is having the same relationship with Jesus as a branch has with a vine. Actually, Jesus said it first, but I like the way Jim puts it there in that sentence. In other words, like a branch needs to stay connected to the vine in order to bear fruit, like a power cord needs to stay plugged into the power source for there to be lights and sound, we must stay connected to Jesus in order to experience the life that he died to make possible. And in order for our lives to become more and more like his, we've got to stay connected to him. And in the first part of John 15, in verses 1 through 17, you can see several things that naturally happen as we abide, as we stay connected to Jesus. And, and number one, when we abide in Jesus, verse 10 tells us we will keep his commandments. That is, it happens naturally, meaning it takes less and less effort to live the way Jesus teaches us to live because we're connected to him and his life is flowing into us. And so we want his life to shape our lives. So obedience becomes less and less of an effort. Number two, when we abide in Jesus, according to verse seven, we will pray and our prayers will be answered in the way that we've asked. Because when we stay connected to Jesus, we will want what he wants. And so our prayers will naturally take the shape, listen, our prayers will naturally take the shape of what Jesus' prayers would be if he was me in my set of circumstances. One more time. When I abide in Christ, I will pray as Jesus would pray if he were me facing my circumstances. And that, by the way, is another way to think about what it means to pray in Jesus' name. 
to pray as Jesus would pray if he were me in my circumstances. And number three, when we abide in Jesus, verses 12 and 17 tell us that we will love each other. In other words, Jesus' kind of love will become more natural to us than holding grudges and letting our tongues run wild in slander and malice or saying nice things to people to their face but actually despising them in our hearts. So here's the point. If Jesus lives in us and we live in him, you and me, I and you, if our life is wrapped up in him, then we are going to love each other. We will love each other regardless of our politics. We will love each other regardless of the color of our skin. We will love each other regardless of our social class. We will love each other despite our likes and dislikes. We will love each other despite if we wear masks or not. Because for the followers of Jesus, love is not something we do if, we, if and when we feel like it. It's not something we do only to people we like or people who are like us. No, loving each other is to be a deliberate, intentional choice that we make to love and serve and care for and forgive others just as Jesus loves and serves and cares for and forgives us. And, and, and here's the point. When we are abiding in Christ, loving this way comes naturally to us. It doesn't take a lot of effort. And there's one more, verse 11. When we abide in Christ, we experience his joy. We experience his joy. Now here's the deal. All these things, obedience, answers to prayer, loving each other as Christ loves us, joy, all these things are the fruit of abiding. All these things are the natural outcomes of staying connected to Jesus. And if we are not seeing this kind of fruit in our lives, the key is not to try harder. The key is to go back and examine whether or not we're abiding. The key is to examine how intact our connection to Jesus really is. Now, we have a very tall tree in our backyard. It's about 15 feet off of our deck, and the tree has no limbs uh, for at least 20 to 30 feet up. It's just a tall, skinny tree. And several years ago, I noticed a small limb sticking out of the trunk of the tree about eye level, and that limb really bugged me. I mean, I mean, it really bugged me. It, now, I didn't lay awake at night, but like every time I went out there, you know, and I'm looking at the bird feeder, and I'm like at this, I'm going, there's that limb again. I mean, I just, I mean, it just really, really bothered me. And the problem was it was too high to reach with any tool that I had, and so I was trying to figure out how to cut it down. And one night, and this was back when Chad was in college, but Karen and I had uh, Chad and some of his friends over for supper, and, uh, and, and while we were waiting for supper, we were like standing around on, on the deck and we were talking and, and I'm looking at that branch over there and, and then I had an idea. So I went upstairs and I got my pellet gun. A Beeman single action, one cock pellet gun with a padded wooden stock. And, and it's the one that Chad and I had killed pesky little house-attacking vinyl-chewing squirrels with. And I, I've told you that story, I think, before, but I'll tell it again one day. But anyway, this pellet gun shoots a pellet at 1,000 feet per second, and it has a huge scope on it, so it looks like an African safari rifle. So we took turns trying to shoot the branch off the tree. 
I know how redneck that sounds, but I'm from North Carolina, man. <laughs> now, this branch, the diameter of the branch was less than half an inch. And uh, after about 10 or 15 shots, Chad nailed the branch. The pellet cut through the top of the branch, not completely severing it, but enough to where it dropped down, severed, but still connected. And after about 25 more unsuccessful shots of trying to shoot the branch completely off, we just gave up trying, left it dangling, and went in for supper. Now, for days, I watched that branch, because it's still bugging me, because it's still hanging there. But for a while, it continued to live. The leaves were still green. But after a while, the leaves turned brown. The branch began to shrivel and die, and it hung there dead for a long time till it finally fell off. Now, to me, that was a good reminder that a branch cannot survive apart from the life-flowing life-giving flow of the tree. And Jesus is saying to us, when there's no fruit, that means the connection with him is not intact. When we find, more, find it more and more difficult to do what Jesus says, when our prayer life shrivels up, when it becomes harder and harder to love people who don't see things like we do, when there's very little joy in our lives, the problem is, that our connection to Jesus has been severed in some way. I'm not saying severed and losing your salvation. This is just an illustration, you understand. The connection is not intact. And the truth is, and I know this is true in my own life, that most often when I find myself flat in the Christian life, in my Christian life, it's because I've shot myself full of pellets of pride and selfishness. Now, in this next section, 15, 18 to 16, 4, Jesus is still talking about abiding and what will happen as we abide in him, as we learn to live in this you and me, I and you relationship, but the whole tone of the conversation changes. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master, so if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all of these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they wouldn't be guilty of sin, but now they've seen and, 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 and heard, and they hate both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law, it has to be fulfilled that they hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the father, so here's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away because they're gonna put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming that when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. 
in the beginning. This is the word of God for the people of God. Now, up to this point, if you've been listening to Jesus describing this abiding relationship, you would think, man, this is great. Sign me up for this. I mean, near effortless obedience, incredible answers to prayer, living in loving relationships with other people, joy, overflowing joy and peace. Yeah, sign me up for that. And then right out of the blue, he turns the corner and says, if the world hates you. If the world hates you. I mean, where did that come from? Well, it comes from the same place as all the other fruit. Jesus is saying, when you abide in me, you and me, I and you, your life will take on a different character. Your life will look more and more like mine. You will not think and act and live like people who do not know God. And that is going to cause you problems. Yes, you will experience more love and peace and joy, but also when you abide in me, Some people are going to come against you. Some people are going to come after you. Jesus says, when you abide in me, the world will hate you and persecute you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Mm, Thanks be to God. Hmm. This is definitely not one of Jesus' feel-good messages, is it? Jesus says in no uncertain terms, As you seek to stay vitally connected to me, some people will not like you. Some people will hate you. Some people will ridicule you and reject your beliefs and values and the way you live. And some people will try to silence you. And some will try to silence you for good. When you abide in me, he says, the world will hate you. The question is, who or what is the world? Well, when Jesus uses the word world, he's not speaking geographically. He's speaking of a system of thought, an ideology that defines life apart from God. He's talking about the world system that's in opposition to God. He's talking about all those who either passively or actively reject Jesus and refuse to acknowledge him and follow him as Savior and Lord. Now, the focus is not so much on individual people hating you. I mean, if you're in a college classroom and the, and the professor is belittling you, it's hard to get your mind around this. But that's not, what, that's, not the, that's not what the focus is here. It's the way it will come at you, but it's not the focus. Because this isn't about individuals who might hate us. We're to love those individuals regardless of how we're treated. No, the focus is on an organized system of unbelief that stands in opposition to Jesus and the truth that has come to us in Jesus. The world that persecuted Jesus was the organized religious system of his day. And the world that persecuted the apostles and the early church also included the Roman government. The world today Secular society, which includes false religion and government systems that set themselves up as God, systems that refuse to acknowledge God as God or Jesus as being from God, any system that openly opposes people who take Jesus and what he says seriously, that's the way Jesus is using the word world. And mark it down, 
for the first time in our nation's history, that system is living and active and gaining ground every day. There are institutional systems and forces in play, both inside and outside our government, both human and spiritual. There's a governing worldview that is postured against God and against the people of God. And at this point, as I said, I think the momentum is, seems, well, at least it seems unstoppable to, unstoppable to me outside of the direct intervention of God. I don't think any candidate or any party necessarily can reverse it. The growing hostility seems unstoppable. The question is, why is that? Why does the world hate Christians? I mean, you can be a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist, no problem. But you can't be a Bible-believing Christian and that be okay. I mean, you can't be a Jew for that matter and it'd be okay. Why is that? Well, in this passage, Jesus tells us why. He gives us three reasons why the world system hates Christians. Three reasons why the world system hates Christians. Number one, the world hates Christians because we're not a part of the system. We're, we're not supposed to be. Verse 18, if the world hates you. Now, let me just do a little Greek grammar lesson. If the world hates you, that in the Greek is called a first-class condition, meaning it's a conditional statement that is true. Like, if the world hates you and it does, then you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you were of this world, and that in the Greek is called a second-class condition, which means it's stating what could be true, but not what is actually true, like if you were of this world and you are not, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of this world, because I chose you out of this world, the world hates you. Jesus says if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, but because I chose you out of the world, because you belong to me, because the world can't own you, it hates you. Now many of you remember a man named C. Everett Koop. He was an evangelical Christian who became the Surgeon General of the United States for eight years under Reagan. You can notice there he's got the whole Jim Thompson beard thing going there. And uh, well, because he was an evangelical Christian, he wanted to do what the Bible said. And in the beginning, the right wing put him up uh, the right wing of the Reagan administration put him up as their champion because he was pro-life. And uh, because he was pro-life, everybody on the left did everything they could to block his nomination for over a year. And the uh, New York Times even had an editorial calling him Dr. Unqualified, even though he was the leading pediatric surgeon in the country at that time. But halfway through his administration... He decided that AIDS was something that the administration wasn't taking seriously enough and that, that we needed to do something about it. Now, he believed what the Bible taught and teaches about homosexuality, but he believed, despite that, we needed to help people anyway, help people with AIDS. We needed to educate people, and we needed to put money into research. And when he came out with his AIDS report, suddenly... Everybody on the right got extremely upset and wanted to get rid of him. And everybody on the left said, now there's someone with integrity. And 
it's interesting that by the end of his term as Surgeon General, he was interested in being considered for a different cabinet position, but he was told by the people on the right who had nominated him, you can forget about any more political appointments. You're just too independent. You see, people whose politics come first won't like the true followers of Jesus because true followers of Jesus never put a political party first. And we will never buy into every single thing that a party espouses as if it's God's truth. And that may mean that you will have to make some decisions that some of your family or your friends may not even like. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will not put your company first. You won't put your race first. You won't put your politics first. You can't because there's a truth from outside of the world that brings all of these things under judgment and your first loyalty, your highest allegiance is to the one who is true and to the truth he has made known. And some people, maybe even some of your family or close friends or associates will turn on you because you see, if the world feels like it owns you, then the world leaves you alone. But, and the party will leave you alone. But Jesus comes along and he says, because you are vitally connected to me, you've changed. You're radically different from this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your loyalty is first and foremost to me and my kingdom agenda. You and me, I and you. I've cut your roots to your race. That's not what defines you, I defined you. I've cut your roots to your political party. That's not what defines you, I define you. I've cut your roots to your social class. That's not what defines you. I define you. He's saying that the people of this world, all these things used to define you just like them and give you your identity, but that's not the way it is anymore. I chose you out of all that. All these things used to be your life, but not anymore. Why not? Because I chose you out of this world and now you belong to me. And it's for that reason, the fact that Jesus chose us out of this world, that we should say things because of what God says I'm pro-life, because of what God says I want to help AIDS patients, because of what God says I want to work for racial justice, because of what God says I think we should care more about people than prophets. You see, if you really want to live by what God says, it may not always line up with a party or a platform or your company or what is commonly accepted in your circle of friends that you run with, and that might get you in trouble. So first of all, Jesus says the world will hate you. Why? Because I chose you out of the world, and you're not a part of the world. You belong to me. Second thing is the world hates Christians because it first hated Jesus. Now, he said that in verse 18, but look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's a restatement of verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first, and he goes on, if they kept my word, if they believed my word and kept it, then they will keep your word as well. Now, at some time in the past, and you've no doubt seen as uh, some, a scene uh, 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 on the evening news, a, a scene somewhere in the Middle East, like in Iran, where there's some kind of demonstration going on, a protest against America, and usually, usually we'll see like a dummy with a noose and around its neck it's wearing a sign of uh, the name of the, whoever the current president is at the time. 
And the rioters set the dummy on fire and they're all chanting, death to America, death to America. You've seen that kind of thing. Now, what do you suppose would happen if all of a sudden you got beamed down in the middle of that crowd and you started singing, God bless America? I mean, I mean personally, I wouldn't want to find out. I mean, because you'd probably be beaten and killed. Now, why is that? Do they hate you? Well, not really, because they don't know you. They hate, though, who you represent. They hate who is behind you, and that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is telling us that people whose minds and hearts are governed by an anti-God world system will hate you first and foremost because they hated him, and you, if you're following him, are in the line of fire. If they hate me, he says, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And the hatred is linked directly to what Jesus taught, which we, as his disciples, are also charged to teach. Look at verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Now, their sin... The sin that they were guilty of is the sin of rejecting Jesus and his teaching. Because you see, Jesus' teaching was authoritative. In the synagogues, after someone read the scripture and then explained the scripture, the man would sit down and the elders of the synagogue would decide whether or not what the man said when he explained the scripture, they would decide whether it was true or not. And if it was judged to be true, they all said, amen, amen, which means true, so true. Now, when Jesus began a sermon, very often he would begin by saying what? Truly, truly. You ever wonder why? Well, because in the Greek, that's amen, amen, which was an absolutely astonishing claim because by that, Jesus was saying, I take away your right to judge whether, I am, whether what I'm saying and teaching is right. What I'm about to say is true, he says, whether you accept it or not. He's saying that what I bring to you is a truth from outside of this world. He's saying what I say to you is not optional because it comes from the Father, it comes from God. You have to listen to it, you have to submit to it. It's not for you to pick and choose what you like or don't like. What I say is true and it's right and it makes demands on you and it's not for you to judge, it sits in judgment on you. And that's the second reason why the world has a lot of trouble with Christianity. Because the world system is committed to the belief that there is no such thing as truth from outside the world. Today, truth is determined by majority vote. Truth is determined by what I think is truth. And now, truth is being determined by big tech companies and, inst and huge institutional systems that censor all opposing views. But underneath all of that is the governing belief that there is no such thing as a truth that comes from outside the world that sits in judgment on us. Years ago, there was a, a, the lead article in the November 2006 issue of Wired Magazine was entitled, The New Atheism, No Heaven, No Hell, Just Science, The Crusade Against Religion. And the article 
tells how that there at that time was a growing movement among atheists to not just condemn belief in God, but to also condemn respect for belief in God. They were saying that religion is not only wrong, it's evil, and it's dangerous. And one of the key leaders of the new atheism, Richard Dawkins, who wrote a book, The God Delusion, is referenced in the article this way. The article says, Dawkins does not merely disagree with religious myths. He disagrees with tolerating them, especially with cooperation in their colonization of the brains of innocent tykes. Quote, how much do we regard children as being the property of their parents, Dawkins asked. It's one thing to say people should be free to believe whatever they like, but should they be free to impose their beliefs on their children? Is there something to be said for society stepping in? What about bringing up children to, br to, bring, to believe manifest falsehoods? In other words, should we allow parents to bring up children to believe what we know is false? End quote. That was 14 years ago. And that mindset and that worldview permeates the secular university system today. You see, the atheist, that, that atheism right there is an organized system of belief that says truth, if it exists at all, can only be found in science from objective, verifiable data. Truth can only be found from the natural world. Truth comes, if there is any such thing, from inside the world. And because Christians have always said that truth comes from outside the world and that truth has come to us in the person of Jesus, we will find ourselves in the position of being persecuted for the very same reasons that Jesus was persecuted. Tim Keller has a commentary on all of this that I think is just brilliant. He says, that's why in socialist communist countries, the church is always seen as reactionary. Why? Because it has a truth that can judge the state and therefore it's a threat to the autonomy of the state. In monarchies and, religious, and in religious governments like in Muslim and Hindu countries, where the elite oppress the poor, or anyone whose race or religion doesn't line up with the state, the church isn't, isn't being persecuted as reactionary. In those kind of countries, it's persecuted for being subversive. Why? Because the church has a truth from outside the world that judges the ruling classes and brings into question the autonomy of the ruling classes. I mean, Jesus taught that we should accept all people regardless of social standing or gender or race, and he modeled that in the way he lived. But today, in India, Christians who teach and practice that truth are targets of merciless attack by Hindu radicals who believe that they are disturbing the natural order of things by accepting as equals the untouchables. The elites want to maintain their oppressive caste system and Christians by their lives and teaching are considered subversive because what they teach and how they live turns the system upside down. And in this country where individual personal freedom and the autonomy of the individual is the divine principle, the church collides with that ideology, ideology as well. Why? Because the church, listen, 
has the audacity to say that there is a truth from outside that judges us and we are not allowed to operate simply on the basis of our personal needs or wants or desires or preferences. We're to live under the rule of God and when we make that kind of assertion, we will be persecuted. No matter where you are, no matter what part of the world you live in, the true church of Jesus claims that there is a teaching, a truth from outside the world, the truth that has come to, to us from Jesus and in and from Jesus that judges us and to which we will one day have to give an account and the world can't stand that. Jesus says that directly, straight out in John 12, 47 and 48. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him for I didn't come to into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has one who judges him. The word that I have spoken, the truth that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. My word will judge him. You see that? There is a truth that comes to us in and through Jesus, truth that comes from outside the world that holds us accountable, truth that is authoritative, truth that demands a submissive response, and that truth that word will judge us all on the last day and the world cannot abide a claim like that. So Jesus says the world hated me, the world rejected me, the world persecuted me, so don't be surprised that you'll experience the same thing when you abide in me. Now he's not saying that everybody's gonna reject us. Look at the last part of verse 20, he says, if they persecuted me, they persecuted you, but if they believed, if they kept my word, they're also gonna keep your word. They'll, they'll believe yours as well, because you're just teaching them, teaching people what I, what I taught. He, so he's saying everybody's not gonna reject the truth, and that's why we're still on mission with God. Some will embrace the truth, but the emphasis here is clearly on, not on the success that we achieve, but on the hatred we receive. Number three, the world hates Christians because it doesn't know God. Verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know the one who sent me. Now this is quite amazing when you think about it because the context and the people that Jesus is talking about is the Jewish religious leaders of that day, religious people. And he says they don't know God. I mean, can that really be true that people who say they believe in God and even try to obey some of the commandments, they don't really know God? Well, of course it's true. Absolutely. And this is the kind of statement that caused religious people to see Jesus as revolutionary and subversive and dangerous and a threat to their autonomy, their religious, political, racial, and social autonomy. And it's why they were plotting to kill him, and it's why they will succeed in killing him. And it's why when his disciples continue to testify about him after he's gone, verse 27, they too will be persecuted, and you know the story. All you have to do is read the book of Acts, and all the faithful followers of Jesus who went forward teaching the gospel and teaching the truth that was in Jesus, many of them were persecuted, and, and, and martyred, and if you follow the history of the church, you know that hundreds of thousands of Christians died because of their faithful, the faithfulness in following Jesus, because of their faith. Look at it, 16, two and three. They, the religious leaders, will put you out of the synagogues. In other words, 
they're going to silence you. They're going to censor you and cancel you. Indeed, the time is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Wasn't that Saul? He thought he was offering a service to God by killing Christians. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. Religion can be a very dangerous thing. Religion can make people do all kinds of destructive things in the name of God that don't look anything like God as he's revealed himself in Jesus. And Jesus says when people ridicule you and reject you and persecute you because of my name, they don't really know God. Because of my name, don't be offensive and judgmental. You don't, don't bring this on yourself by being a jerk. He says, when you live like me and act like me and stay connected to me, they will hate you just like they hated me. Now, there are a lot of leaders in both parties who claim to be people of faith, who claim to be Catholic, who claim to be Christian, but their policies and personalities don't look anything like Jesus. And please don't try to make, make them look like Jesus. And you and I are not to judge whether they know God or not. But when people who claim to be people of faith malign and slander and belittle other people of faith because of how they practice their faith in Jesus, when they elevate their politics over the practical outworkings of faith in Jesus, well, what does Jesus say about that? Just saying. Now, you know what makes this passage a difficult passage? It, it, it's not that it's hard to understand, right? I mean, it's pretty clear what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you abide in me, yes, you will experience my peace and my joy and my life and all its fullness. But if you stay connected to me, you will also experience my pain. He's telling them and us that opposition and conflict and hostility will be a bitter fruit of our you and me and I and you relationship. Not really a feel-good message, is it? So what are we supposed to take away from all of this? Or what does Jesus want us to do with all of this? Well, he tells us straight out in verse one. He says, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. I'm telling you this all beforehand to keep you from falling away. Implication, I want you to be prepared for what's coming. Think of all the implications. I've said all these things to you to keep you from being discouraged when it happens to you. I've said all these things to you to keep you from thinking that I've abandoned you when it happens to you. I've said all these things to you to assure you that I still love you when it happens to you. I've said all these things to you so you will know that I am with you and for you when it happens to you. I've said all these things to you so you will have that it is well with my soul kind of peace that I give you when it happens to you. I have said all these things to you so you will stay vitally connected to me when it happens to you. I have said all these things to you so you will depend on the Holy Spirit, the helper, the spirit of truth that the Father will give you in my name to give you the wisdom and the boldness you need when it happens to you. 
I have said all these things to you, verse four, so that when these things happen to you, you, re, you will remember I told you it would happen. Our world is growing darker. The hostility is getting louder. Are you prepared for what's coming? This sermon that Jesus gave right here, he gives to prepare us so that we don't fall away when it happens. On Friday in our community Bible reading plan, we finished up 2 Peter. And to me, Peter's closing words are a fitting close to this message. Here's what Peter tells his friends who are living in a world that's growing more and more hostile to their faith. Chapter 3 Verses 13 to 18. Now, what I want you to do is I just want you to close your eyes for a second and take a deep breath. And I want you to let the peace of God in this passage calm your heart. Peter says, but according to his promise, we're waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen, amen.